Hello, hello, hello. It's Monday night, so you know what that means. We are back for another episode of EU and Me, the Ivory Road podcast. I'm joined as ever by Paco. Paco, you're, you look very sharp today. Thank you so much. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, yeah, I'm wearing a pink, um, just wearing in pink because uh, to celebrate the 10 years of the Istanbul Convention. So, uh, That's just what we need to end gender inequality, Paco, pink clothes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> so, symbolic. All right, let's start there. Well, I, sorry, you're, you're okay? Everything's good? Life is... Life yeah, is it's good. Like, this is actually the first day in Valencia where there is no... Well, the um, lockdown has been moved to midnight, so life is starting back slowly to, yeah. to be more normal. So we hope that uh, the case go down and then we keep going towards a new normality at least uh, was a really hard period for everyone yeah let's see we can travel now too which is always good yeah um all right let's jump right in and start with istanbul then so today or tomorrow i think it's tomorrow marks 10 years since the istanbul convention on the prevention of violence against women was open to be signed paco it's been 10 years things were looking good and then we had a pandemic how does how is the Istanbul Convention, how, what role does it play in society these days? Has it been a success? Has it been a failure? Has it been anything? What do you think? Yeah, so well, I'll start as usually uh, being an historian from the historical background a little bit, uh, just to uh, give us a little bit something to discuss. Um, well, what's created, as you were saying, yeah, is tomorrow, the 10th anniversary on the 11th of May, 2011. Uh, but actually had been discussed from the uh, 1990s already. So it's from the 1990s that the Council of Europe started to discuss the necessity to do something for gender uh, violence, mm -hmm. gender-based violence. So first of all, it's the first uh, binding international instrument to fight gender violence. So that already makes you understand how important it is as a, in, an initiative. Uh, there were some treaties before, but they were not binding. They were just uh, international treaties. This has been the first international binding treaty to fight uh, violence against women. And uh, yeah, I think it can be considered probably one of the most powerful agreement um, from a legal, cultural, and political perspective. It was the ASTAS force started in 2008, so almost uh, it took almost 18 years to actually move from discussion to um, doing something uh, concrete, but actually came into force only in 2014. Uh, so actually, we would say 10 years actually uh, is only uh, seven years basically that has come to uh, into force. So we can say like, but, but still it's kind of a period where to give uh, some uh, data also, even if it was not into force before, I guess, like as a you know code, it was signed. Uh, so it, it still played a role in determining like sort of the attitude of governments toward uh, gender violence. Mm -hmm. So let, let's let's start to say what it does mainly, I would say. Uh, I think a really important thing uh, is that institute, like as you were saying, how it's going. It's, we were just discussing this before now. It's really difficult to say with these kind of things because of course it's really difficult 
to know what stats to look at. And uh, with most of these treaties, you know, states sign them, but they remain, uh, how do you say, that paper? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, exactly. A lot of it's not enforced. I mean, you have European Union member states have signed it, others haven't, or have signed it but haven't ratified it. So the EU hasn't ratified it as a whole. Yeah. I mean, in theory, in, in, countries. It, it was an incredible document. It is an incredible document. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, it's, its power and its influence has been affected by the pandemic, like everything else. No, that, definitely. It was signed by 45 countries and uh, only ratified, if I'm not wrong, by 19. So that already makes you understand. Um, and there were actually, I have a list, of, if you want, of the uh, bad European EU countries. So like Czech Republic, Slovakia, Bulgaria, Moldova, and Baltic Republic still haven't ratified it. Um, yeah, so and but the, the, the important thing though is that was created this GREVIO, which is a, a monitoring mechanism, specific monitoring mechanism to ensure the effective implementation actually of the agreement. So, differently from other agreements, this has its own monitoring mechanism, which is supposed to. Um, to assure that uh, it's implemented. Now we can discuss if it uh, worked or not. I think the fact, you know, that uh, Turkey recently left the the agreement, and also the fact that Poland and Hungary are, you know, uh, complaining a lot about it, it means that uh, it's a good sign, kind of. In yeah, a it's mean, a sort of good sign. No, like way, yeah. I know what you mean. It's actually doing something, apparently. Otherwise, you wouldn't have any reason to, to leave it. Actually, on that side, like, is also completely arbitrary, like the fact of, you know, they are leaving because supposedly to protect family values, because supposedly the um, Istanbul Convention undermines family values and promotes, uh, which would be good, actually, if it actually did it, like, not undermine family values, but uh, promote... Uh, um, the concept of gender and uh, of uh, gender equality, not, not only gender equality, but also of uh, equality of different kinds of family, uh, not only the traditional right. heterosexual family. It actually doesn't do that. It's not, it, there is the concept of gender inside, but it's only uh, really focused on the concept of gender, uh, fam- like just protects women. Yeah. So it represents so much of what is wrong about the people who are governing the likes of Poland and Hungary at the moment, that they're against a document like this, which doesn't try and take anything away from anyone, doesn't try and harm anyone. All it tries to do is protect people who up until beforehand were not protected in this way. You know, there's absolutely nothing. There's no justification for leaving the the convention unless, of course, you're Erdogan and you just do whatever you whatever you please. But let's um, stepping away from the, the document, Paco, let's talk about the issue because it's quite a difficult thing to measure the impact of a document like this on a topic such as gender-based violence, you know, particularly in, in light of the pandemic. A lot of the violence suffered towards women and girls is domestic. It's based at home, whether it be a father, an uncle, a husband, a boyfriend, whatever it is. And now we're in a situation where people are spending days, weeks, months locked in a house with the person who is their abuser in a lot of ways. How much of an impact do you think the pandemic's had in this, on this topic? Yeah, no, uh, 
that was uh, uh, incredible. Of course, we already analyzed that in some of our articles. Uh, now, the specialist here is, of course, Georgia. There is a really good article. I invite all the um, our listeners to uh, read that. We can actually post it um, together with this, uh, to, together with the podcast. Um, the, the impact was massive, of course. He closed, basically, victims were forced in the house together uh, with the people abusing them. Um, it's really, really a tragic situation. I think the European Union should be doing more. And in general, perhaps we should do more in future, you know, in case similar situation of emergency um, happen to give instruments to women to um, to protect themselves. There is a 24-H number, um, which is, uh, we can also touch this, like it's quite interesting. I was looking at it outline in uh, all uh, in all European countries, but this is still too little. Like, I mean, in, in a situation like this, you need, uh, it should have been a priority to protect Absolutely. Uh, women uh, and in general victims of violence. Yeah. Yeah. suffered I mean, even more at the best of times when there's no pandemic and the world is normal these crimes still don't get reported enough they don't get investigated enough they aren't punished enough mm-hmm. you know we certainly have a role to play as the next generation let's say young men talk up about the issues you know it's not just violence anymore since the pandemic you know all the progress made in the gender pay gap is gone basically yeah. It's women disproportionately having to drop out of work now to mind kids at home because they're they, the kids are at home now instead of being in school. Um, it's been an awful year for gender equality, I think, in a lot of ways. We've really, it's not even that we've stopped, it's that we've taken steps backwards. It's really sad. Yeah, um, definitely. I really hope that now with the recovery plan, uh, we will have, you know, it's one of the goals of the recovery plan to foster gender equality. A good thing of the the Istanbul Convention, as you were saying, is also that gives institutes new um, kind of uh, uh, violence, like for example, forced marriage. I was checking and forced abortion, also forced sterilization were not before considered uh, crimes, stuff like that. And the other thing I really like, and I think this is a fundamental thing that uh, we need to promote as European Union a bit more, is the prevention. So it's divided in four P's, let's say, the, the code of prevention, protection, prosecution, mm-hmm. and coordinated policies would be. The others are kind of ob- obvious. The prevention part, I think it's really good. So the education and uh, uh, p- raising public awareness, I think is still uh, one of the most important uh, uh, thing. So I think economic help from one side and from the other side, as you were saying, public awareness starting from the the school, really starting from uh, elementary school, basically educating children to discuss about this, educating children to know that there is a gender gap, that there is uh, a tremendous problem that we need to uh, fight all together, basically. We've all got a role to play, you know. Everyone can do something to help remedy these these inequalities, these injustices in our society. Definitely. Okay, um, let's move on from that. So we'll quickly mention Scotland because there were elections in Scotland last week and uh, the SNP, the Scottish Nationalist Party, did not get the absolute majority they were hoping for. They were one seat short. So they had, I think it was 64 seats and they needed 65 for the absolute majority. Now, however, before the elections, the Green Party said they will be voting in favor of 
another independence referendum. So at some point in the next five years, we're probably going to see another independence referendum in Scotland. There isn't a whole lot to say about, I mean, it's, I don't know what to expect from a new referendum because looking at the polls over the last year, support is pretty much always at around 50%. You know, yeah. it doesn't seem like too many people are undecided. It seems like people are either pretty pro-independence or pretty anti-independence. So I have no idea what to expect if there's another referendum, to be honest. I think Brexit will have a big impact. You know, if Brexit starts or everything turns to shit because of Brexit, I'm sure there'll be a, a victory in that referendum. What do we think, Paco? Have you looked into it at all? Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, well, first of all, it, overall, it seems that it was a good win from the SNP. You know, oh, definitely. Uh, it was, yeah. It was a, a gain from 2016. A, a good win, yeah. So politically, this represents a sort of signal that, in any case, there is a ra raising like uh, demand for a referendum. I think it's correct to make it, you know, especially a country who just left a union. I know there was a referendum before, but it was before this is, you know. 2014, yeah, I think it was. Yeah, it is uh, uh, changing the deal, like it's deal changing because like uh, before they, many people voted to remain in the UK because they were afraid of leaving the European Union. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, like I think in terms of self-determination of the population, it's necessary to have a, um, a referendum and these elections confirmed that. I particularly, personally, I love Scotland and uh, I really like Nicola Sturgeon as well. Like, I mean, she's, I, I find they're cool. Like um, they are progressive, you know, pro-European way better than Boris Johnson, let's say. So personally, uh, anyone would look good beside Boris Johnson. <laughs> that's a good point. So personally, I do I, I would love to have them back in the EU, of course. But of course, that is a question to ask to the uh, Scottish population. In my perspective, I think it's important to to give them the opportunity to vote as you know, we would support the same in Catalonia, different question. But in, in any case, like, you know, at least to to open a dialogue, it's really important with these kind of uh, uh, independentist uh, movements. Yeah, and especially as you said, I mean, things have changed so much in the difference from 2014 to 2016 when the whole Brexit conversation started, and then this year when Brexit kicks in, it's Great Britain is a very different place. The United Kingdom is a very different place to how it was before. Uh, so I think it's only fair Scottish people get to decide for themselves what what they want to be involved in and not. Yeah. Um, all right, Paco, you want to tell me something about France? Protests. We love a good protest. Yeah, it's actually always controversial you know, talking about protests during a pandemic because, of course, uh, we know that yeah, if you need to protest, you need to protest. Yeah, exactly. pandemic or no pandemic. Yeah, exactly. But you know, it's uh, also funny how some are allowed and some are not. You know, it's always uh, a bit controversial, at least. For example, for the 8th of March, you know, like they were not not protests, but like well, protests as well. Uh, always in connection with the Istanbul Convention for the 8th of March, uh, there were not allowed basically uh, many protests around Europe. Well, but in any case, so talking about France, um, well, we mentioned a few podcasts ago, I don't remember how many, but it, the fact that it was had been fined symbolically. Uh, oh, one euro. One euro, yeah, really bad. But still better than nothing, we would say, to not having uh, respected basically the agreements on climate. They didn't uh, 
reach the results they were supposed to reach. And uh, so there were, in, as a consequence, there was a big protest. Uh, I think the biggest probably, at least in the country since uh, the beginning of the pandemic was organized on this Sunday, Sunday 9th of March. And uh, uh, more than 115,000 people around the country protested, 55,000 only in, uh, in Paris. Uh, now, the protest was also organized by the Confédération Générale du Travail, so the, trade, the main trade union in France, which is really powerful, and with the participation of Greenpeace, on, of the university trade unions, so it was a really big and uh, more than 600 associations mobilized, so it was kind of widespread, especially in the world, of course, of the progressives. Mm -hmm. I think one really cool thing they proposed, I don't think Macron is going to uh, accept that, uh, there are some agreements that are being discussed in France exactly in this period. Uh, they propose to add climate protection to the constitution. So to sort of embed climate protection in the constitution and make it an essential uh, line of action for every government. I think that is actually really cool and it should actually probably move to something similar at the European level. Uh, thinking about the constitution of Europe, which is still uh, you know, we don't have a proper constitution. Uh, would be interesting to have something like that uh, as an idea, like, you know, climate change is such an important topic that uh, should really become uh, a universal line of action and sort of also of a universal right to see guaranteed um, protection. Who um, Who's going to suggest this idea to our North American friends that they add it to their constitution? What do you think? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that, that is going to be difficult, although with Biden now, hopefully a bit more, uh, we should be a little... 200 Bidens won't get them to put the word environment in that constitution, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, no, um, exactly. <laughs> another interesting thing I saw in France this morning, oh, obviously, environmental protection in the constitution seems like a really good idea to me. Uh, I have no idea, is anyone else doing this at the moment, Paco? Or is this uh, the first, is this like a... France leading the way in protests as usual. These I have no ideas, honestly, like it wasn't uh, reported. Uh, I guess probably somewhere in uh, Scandinavia could be that there are some proposals. I had read something about this, yeah. but uh, we should check. Yeah. So another interesting story from France today, briefly. Um, now I don't want to get bogged down in this because I think it's kind of silly, but there was a letter written, an open letter written by former military leaders, military generals and uh, higher ups in the army who are in the process of retiring or they'll retire soon, calling that, saying that there's going to be a civil war in France soon. They've got 130,000 signatures as a response to the increased sympathizing towards Islam in France. I don't know. It sounds a, it sounds a bit far-fetched, but... Um, 130,000 signatures. It's okay, it's not an incredible number, but it's not a joke either. And if important people with access to, you know, trouble causing <laughs> equipment and e easily influenced people are saying these kind of things, we should probably keep an eye on that story as it develops because throwing those kind of words around is not funny if it's a joke, you know what I mean? Yeah, um, and especially after, you know, what we saw at Capitol Hill in the US, we see that we are in a historical period where actually, you know, democracy is way more fragile than before, yeah. especially in a country like France that, you know, is not the case. It was uh, assaulted by basically the ISIS 
it identified France as the weak uh, country in Europe, basically because of uh, all the tension that is in this social tissue from this point of view, like in terms of immigration, it's a disaster. Well, we, we also mentioned no um, cases of black people being basically mm. well, it's uh, also, I mean, suffering it, violence. It's mm. also relevant to point out that any anti-Islamic sentiment that is projected in France is felt by a huge proportion of that population. There are huge numbers of, of Muslims in France. You know, it's coming out and introducing policies that are anti-Islam. It's, it's not okay anywhere, just on the face of it, but it's, you're certainly gonna face backlash in France. You know, there's such, high, such a high Muslim population there. Um, anyway, yeah, I just thought it was a strange uh, open letter to see this morning, an interesting story. Yeah. Um, I really hope that Macron wakes up a little bit. <laughs> Macron's hopeless enough. I don't know. I, yeah. Not the guy I like. <laughs> dimensional, it seems. It's very predictable. Um, all right. Next story. And again, it's not a great one. This was kind of sad. Um, Jerusalem has oh, yeah. just caught fire over the last number of weeks, and particularly in the last few days. There have been hundreds of people injured in clashes with police. Uh, police shooting tear gas, rubber bullets, stun grenades, protesters throwing stones. So, you know, equal fight. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, the, the main, the crux of the issue here seems to be the same issue that has been in Israel and Palestine for the last 30 or 40 years, which is it's to do with Palestinians being forced out of their homes, forcibly evicted from their homes in Eastern Jerusalem. Mm -hmm to make way for Israeli settlers. Now, I don't claim to be an expert on the region, but this is exactly what's been happening for the last 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And it is destroying any opportunity for Palestine to have its own Palestine, its own free state away from completely independent from Israel and all that ongoing feud. So yeah, it's terrible. It's absolutely awful. Um, no one should be kicked out of their house. Nobody cares who the land belonged to 60 or 70 years ago. It doesn't give you the right to kick that person out of that house today. And also it's complete hypocrisy because this is exactly how Israel was started in the first place, you know? Um, it's just sad, that whole, that area of the world, I just feel so bad for so many people living there. They never, they don't get to grow up free from conflict. It's, seeming, it's seemingly never ending and you're, but a lot of people are born hating their their neighbors just for because that's the way it is you know it's very sad love it yeah definitely no no that's terrible situation of course it seems like as you say never ending problem uh, i would say after arafat our, with the problem with our the period with arafat and clinton was probably the only period where we had the sort of hope for a, a stable peace now it's basically the peace is israeli taking control of the of the land and uh, enforcing an armed control um i you know i'm really it's not even it, just it is, of course like it's, it's not even just israel it's it's like new age colonialism you know it's just taking land and making it your own because let's not forget who backs israel you know israel don't support themselves um, yeah they've got some big boys in the playground helping them out you know yeah, no, that definitely, of course, there is the, the, the economic interest behind Israel and mainly, of course, the U.S. are 
uh, incredible. I, I'm, uh, there is one thing about this that I was really surprised when I was in the UK, you know, where you are not allowed to criticize the state of Israel because it considered anti-Semitism. Now, of course, anti-Semitism is a really, really serious problem. Uh, I'm asking you a little bit as well, because being more closer to perhaps Northern Europe, uh, you, you can understand this a bit more. Close one. I thought, you, I thought you were going to suggest I was from the UK there for a second, Paco. No, no, of, co <laughs> of course, I would never uh, say that about Ireland. Um, no, but uh, you know what I mean? Like in the sense of, of course, anti-Semitism is a big problem, uh, but we have seen all this giant discussion also with Corbyn, no? Mm -hmm. uh, now, I, I don't, uh, in, in the merit of Corbyn is different, but like in general, I, I, I sometimes feel, you know, it becomes a bit of a problem where you are, you cannot criticize, so you can criticize the government of Israel, but not Israel as a country. Because of course, uh, basically right now, I, I agree with you right now, it doesn't make sense, but still, you know, it's a country that was created taking some lands away from other people. So I'm just saying like there is really little discussion internationally about this. It seems that there is less and less now and combined with what we were discussing before, like this sort of mounting anti-Islamic mm -hmm. feelings that is uh, widespread in the uh, Western world is something that is really concerned in my, in my opinion. And I think we should discuss a little bit more uh, about mm -hmm. this. And uh, um, I don't know, it seems that it's not really a priority for the international community at the moment. It's exactly what you've said. And to, to break down what you've said, Paco, at least what I've understood is it highlights the complete hypocrisy of the whole situation, you know? Yeah. You can't say anything about Israel because Britain and the US will be angry at you. But say whatever you want about Islam as a whole, even though really what you're criticizing is one specific action or one specific subgroup who fall under that, that religious heading. I think you're absolutely right. Talking of criticizing Israel does not make you anti-Semitic. Criticizing jihad does not make you anti-Islam. Talking about these topics is okay. And if people get upset about you talking about them, that is their problem as far as I'm concerned. You know, don't be anti-Semitic, don't be anti-Islamic. But absolutely, if you want to talk and debate and critique these religions just like you would any other topic, I don't see that as problematic at all. Yeah. Always with respect, of course, for uh, everyone and uh, trying not to offend anyone, uh, of course. But the, discussing, I don't know, I find it always positive, you know, and exchanging yeah. ideas, even when they are, we don't agree, like it's always a good yeah. uh, thing and makes you grow a lot. Absolutely. All right. Um, I think we might leave it there, Paco. Yep. Um, we were going to mention our old friend Orban, but we'll, we'll give him another couple of days of peace. We're, we're awful. He must, he, must be getting, he must be beginning to think we're fans of his, the amount we're talking about him. Yeah. Anyway, we are... All right, we're going to leave it there. We will be back on Wednesday. We've got a great podcast to share with you all um, with the new, a new member of the team talking about migration, talking about the arts and the role the arts and theatre in particular can play in helping migrants get comfortable and settle into their new, their new home. And Paco, what have we got coming up on Friday? Uh, Thursday, actually, Thursday evening. Uh, we, we moved to it on Thursday. Uh, now, yeah, we have a podcast uh, in Italian. Uh, we are starting to have some more multilingual uh, podcasts soon uh, about migration, basically, with uh, the European member of European Parliament. Uh, we have um, two of them. We have uh, uh, Alessandra Moretti and Pietro Bartolo. Mm -hmm. uh, particularly, well, we already had uh, Moretti as a guest. They both went 
uh, on a mission in uh, to visit the um, refugee camps between Bosnia and Croatia. So it, they are they are going to talk. Uh, tell us what well, Georgia is going to lead that podcast together with uh, Francesca Papais. Uh, so uh, they are going to tell us a little bit about their experience. I recommend to they're going to be subtitles. It's really interesting because Bartolo is a, a doctor and he's like he used to work in this uh, um, in the boats in Sicily and to go on the sea and to actually get wow. the refugees uh, from the from the water so to save them basically and it's really it's really moving it's really you know i actually saw him live in uh, padova a few years ago i actually started to cry because it's really moving uh, you know the way it tells you about yeah. real experience you know because we talk about this thing but actually it's different to leave them uh, concretely Awesome. All right. Two heavyweights of Italian migration policy. So coming in on Thursday. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Thanks again, Paco. Pleasure as always. And we will see everybody else later in the week. Have a nice evening. Bye.